0: Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com longform or use code longform at checkout.
1: For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink.
2: Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm here with just one co-host, Aaron Lammer. How are you, sir? Hey. Evan is uh, on vacation. As people who listened to last week's episode about the making of his podcast persona, they understand why he's on vacation now. The man worked
0: very, very hard on that show. If you're on vacation, it's a great vacation. Listen, it's about eight, 30, 40 minute episodes. You're half driving there, half driving back. Let's go. I'm
2: telling you, get to the end of that podcast. That last episode, it delivers. But this episode of this
0: podcast, Aaron, you don't even know who I'm talking to, do you? You just appeared on my computer, and now I'm talking to you? I don't know what this is all about. What's going on? This is about Michael Pollan. Oh. Michael
2: Pollan is back on the show. He's got a couple of things out in the world. So the last time we talked, he came on. He talked about his book, How to Change Your Mind, which is about psychedelics and consciousness he has a new book out it's called this is your mind on plants it's a collection of a couple of different pieces of writing that he has done about plants that alter consciousness opium caffeine mescaline but he also has a netflix show out it's called how to change your mind he's the star of the thing it's like a netflix adaptation of his book and uh i talked to him about what it's like to um get real into psychedelics and the culture of psychedelics, but also about how he picks topics and how he went from food to psychedelics and what he's thinking about tackling next.
0: We are brought to you in partnership with Vox Media, who help us produce this show. Thanks to everyone at Vox. Now, here's Max with Michael Pollan.
2: Hey, Michael. Hey, Max. Thanks for uh, doing the podcast again. I appreciate it. Sure, happy to be back. Um, So I think that we should think of this conversation as like a postscript to the last one we had. So the last time we talked, it was June 2018, and we talked about your career many, many years earlier, but we also talked about the work that went into that book, How to Change Your Mind and Your Interest in Psychedelics. And I mean, I guess a couple things have happened. Since twenty eighteen. Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> We've had some distinct experiences. But I think today, if it's okay with you, we can just talk a little bit about what these last couple of years have been like for you and also where you feel like you're going in your work next, because the thing that I have noticed from afar, from three thousand miles away, is um that you've become like the psychedelics guy. <laughs>
3: Yeah, it's. I suppose it's nice for a change from being the food guy. Uh. Yeah, there's the
2: gardening <laughs> guy, and then the food guy, and now... Why it's can't like, I just be the writer guy? <laughs> I, well, I, this is actually kind of what I want to talk to you about, is like, how conscious are these choices to become a different guy? But how are you feeling about being the psychedelics guy? Does that feel like an accurate description?
3: Well, it's complicated. I mean... You know, I approach these topics very much as an amateur. I think we talked about that, that I like to really write as someone who is new and untutored in something and take readers on a journey of discovery. But all it takes in America, apparently, is a couple publications and certainly a publication of a book. And suddenly you're an expert and, <laughs> and people who you learned everything you know from treat you like an expert and invite you to speak at their conferences and things like that. And it's like, don't you get it? I just learned this last year. <laughs> So, expertise is cheap in America. That's one of the lessons I would take away. You know, I found myself at two distinct points in my history, having this transition from being the journalist, learning at the feet of these people, to becoming an advocate. And um, it's an awkward role for a journalist. But at a certain point, it would be kind of false to pretend you didn't have points of view, that there weren't directions in which you did think the world should go. And the great thing about doing narrative nonfiction is that editors cut you a fair amount of slack at the end of a 10,000-word piece to say what you think. Um, I don't see myself as an evangelist for psychedelics per se. I do see myself as an advocate for the research and the potential, which is incredible. And we have good reason to believe that we may have a powerful new set of tools here to treat what is a, a tremendous mental health crisis. So what I can do to advance the research agenda and public education agenda, I'm happy to do as an expert. As an expert. Yeah, but I don't advise people to take psychedelics. I haven't gotten involved in the ballot initiatives and all the various political things. But once again, something that began as a a playing out of my curiosity has turned into kind of a movement. And I find that very interesting and curious, and it has something to do with how I pick topics, but these two uh, movements in American culture toward reforming agriculture and the food system and the American diet and advancing psychedelics as a potential treatment for mental illness, I think the zeitgeist was just kind of there. You know, as writers, that is sort of what we're paid for, is to look around a corner and have some sense that I think the culture is ready to have this conversation. You don't always get it right. You often get it wrong. And you don't want to be too far ahead either. You know, many years ago, I was working for a magazine that went out of business. No thanks to me. It was a visionary magazine. Um, It was way ahead of the curve on understanding how the conjunction of personal computers, cable and satellite and television would change everything. And Les Brown was the editor and he saw the future, but no one else saw it (laughs) with him. So the magazine was kind of short-lived. Wait, what was the magazine called? It was called Channels of Communications. And it was around in the... The 80s and 90s. It might not have been helped by that uh, not particularly catchy name.
2: Yeah.
3: <laughs> it had, there were lots it's of issues. It's hard to
2: imagine people being like, you have got to get the, the latest, latest channels. issue of channels, yeah.
3: But the publisher, <laughs> after we were like sitting around his office bemoaning the end of our jobs, and he said, you know, in journalism, you really just want to be a short-term visionary. You don't want to be a long-term <laughs> visionary. Or no one will know what the hell you're talking about. Right, if you're a short-term visionary, that also is a uh, short-term path to becoming an expert. I guess so. I guess so. If the culture then wants experts in that area. And so anyway, it's been a curious, you know, I'm a political person. It's one of the reasons I write. And, you know, even though I don't write on politics directly, there are often political implications. I mean, food has all sorts of political implications, right? Of course agricultural policy basically creates the food system we have and is fucked up in all sorts of ways. And ditto, you know, the regulatory and legal world surrounding psychedelics. So you do find yourself eventually bumping up against politics. And I'm not afraid to do that. And I have enough freedom in my writing where I can do that. And I've picked topics too, where editors weren't particularly sensitive to the fact that my point of view might be offensive to powerful interests. Do you enjoy the awkwardness
2: of it? Like you described it earlier as awkward. Like, do you like being in that slightly uncomfortable place?
3: Yeah, I don't mind that. I mean, there's a lot of thought you have to give. Do I want to get involved in this? Do I want to peer with this organization? Do you know what I mean? There's a whole kind of algorithm. You want to preserve your independence. You don't want to get too allied with any particular interest or corporation or nonprofit or whatever. Do you do that math by yourself? Usually, yeah, yeah. I don't know who to consult on that. No, actually, I shouldn't say that. My wife is very good. Judith is very good about this. She's very sensitive about these kind of issues. Like, how would this look to be, go to do that benefit? But I like, you know, I've spent a lot of time raising money for psychedelic research. And I feel like that's a pretty easy contribution I can make. People will come hear me talk about it. And some of them have, you know, big fat checkbooks. Are there any moments or decisions or situations
2: you found yourself in where you were like, I think this may be pushed a little too far?
3: Yeah, I'm sure there are. I can't think of one offhand, but there have been things where I've just realized, you know, I I really should stay away from this.
2: I'm having like a flash to you, like trapped on some cruise for like food
3: culture or something. (laughs) (laughs) I never get on cruise boats. (laughs) Even, Even before COVID, I don't do that. So yeah, I mean, I'm very interested in the way that What you write and what you learn as a writer, you can make real in the world. Um, So after the psychedelic book, not only did I get involved with the research community, but at Berkeley, we as a group of us, mostly scientists and me, founded a new psychedelic research center. That's taking up a lot of my time these days so that's a pretty direct involvement my focus obviously is not i'm not a scientist i'm still an idiot (laughs) but um but i can help with the public education so we have a newsletter we publish twice a week and um, we're doing a massive online course that i'll be involved with and we have a journalism fellowship by the way we're giving out grants deadline coming up end of july ten thousand dollars if you have a good story in the psychedelic area does that feel like part of your journalistic work or does it feel wholly distinct the public education, that does feel like part of my journalistic work. I mean, I top edit the newsletter every week and spend time proposing topics. and So it's it's my editing hat, which I wear as a professor. I teach writing and as this director of public education for the center. So yeah, I still like to exercise those editing muscles. Is being the um, psychedelics guy
2: totally different than being the food guy?
3: <sighs> yes and no. I mean, as the food guy, I ate really, really well. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there were all these wonderful farm-to-table events. The benefits always had really good food. It wasn't a rubber chicken circuit by any means. <laughs> so, right. I, think, I mean,
2: people couldn't mess that part of it up, right?
3: Yeah. And then, you know, getting nice dishes sent over in restaurants and all that kind of stuff. In the psychedelic world, it's like people passing you things you really don't want to be seen taking. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, you know, you shouldn't take. And I get invited to lots of, how shall I say, underground events that I don't go to because I just feel like, you know, reputationally it's a risk. <laughs> so it's it's Even if it sounds like a good time. Even if it sounds like a good time. And, you know, I haven't been to Burning Man and I really have no desire to go just because I don't think I'd have much anonymity. So, yeah, it's different. It's definitely different. But in both cases, you know, it is to the extent that what you're writing, you want to translate into some change in the world. It's another set of tools to do that. And I sort of feel some responsibility to doing that. But I really am uncomfortable when people approach me as a leader of the psychedelic movement. I I remember the very first book event I did in Cambridge for How to Change Your Mind. A woman got up at the end and started her question as a leader of the psychedelic movement. Now, I had just published the book the day before. What can you do about the fact that the psychedelic world is so white you're like i've only I've only had this job for like twenty four hours yeah I know, <laughs> and it's not a job I wanted, and actually, Rick Doblin, who is a leader of the psychedelic movement, he happened to be in the room, so I pointed to him as someone who might be able to answer this question but i you know I did try to tackle it. I think it's a really interesting question. The psychedelic world has been very white. there are reasons for it, I think, having to do with the fact that frankly, as white people. Uh, we risk much less getting caught with a illegal drug than a black person does. So we can operate with a sense of safety that no black person ever can, especially around drugs. But, I mean, that's the kind of position you find yourself in. But all this said, even though I do spend a lot of time, whether it's making films or starting Psychedelic Center or doing fundraising, I have to say I still don't feel I've done an honest day's work if I'm not writing. It's still what qualifies as. That is what I do. That is what gives me satisfaction. Everything else is moonlighting. That's what counts. Yeah, it is what counts for me. It's what counts. It's what lasts. It's what gives me a real sense of satisfaction. And I get, you know, smaller senses of satisfaction from uh, doing these other things.
2: Is that because writing's harder?
3: Yeah, it is harder in some ways. Although being in a group, having a meeting with a bunch of people with very different points of view is really hard work and requires all my patience. And I find myself in more of those meetings now with the center, but yeah, it's definitely harder. And I just feel that's me, that's my main work. And that will always be my main work. Although I have to fight for time to do it, I have to say.
2: Well, that was the thing I was gonna ask you about. I mean, it feels to me like for someone in your position, it would be really easy to skip it.
3: Yeah, I have so many good excuses.
2: Yeah. They must just line up every morning. You just open your inbox and it's a world of
3: great excuses. I've got all these other things I can do. Yeah. But I just don't feel good about that. I really feel guilty. And if I go too many days doing other things, it doesn't feel good. I'm not a great procrastinator.
2: Yeah. It's not like it requires discipline to do it.
3: I mean, it's what I want to do and I'm not going to ever transition out of it into doing activism or running something. And I even felt that for a lot of the time I was editing that. It was really writing I wanted to do, and all this was a way to support myself while I was, you know, learning how to write.
0: Support for long form this week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball, needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So, I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something. Like, very quickly, the voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself. Risk free. Now normally you get a two-week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier.
2: Has your relationship to writing changed? as your writing has found more and more success? Like now that you've been the guy in multiple ways? No,
3: it's the same. I mean, maybe if you're writing an op-ed piece and you're like standing up on the mountain screaming, it's a different kind of flavor. But when I'm writing my books and articles, it is no different. I'm still writing as the same curious amateur I never write as an expert, and that's one of the reasons I have to change topics, because it becomes disingenuous at some point when you do become an expert, Right, and that's why I was ready to leave food, and no, it's still the same. It's just as hard, and I'm writing the same way I did when nobody was waiting for it, as I do now that there are readers waiting for it or editors waiting for it or whatever. Yeah, it's interesting how little it's changed. I always thought writing would be like woodworking or something and you'd get a set of skills and you could do it in your sleep. You'd have all this muscle memory. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be like that. It's kind of <laughs> a bummer. You know, I see musicians. I see people who just have these skills they've built up. I've been doing this for a really long time and I should have that facility. And I still find it's a sentence-by-sentence sentence slog. Do you think you're better at it? I think there are things I can do that I struggled to do before. I think I'm more relaxed as a writer. I think I try too hard. You know, I had to reread my first book not long ago, which was really a sobering experience. <laughs> I had written it and published it before there were such a thing as audiobooks, and somebody had the bright idea of making an audiobook out of it, which required me to reread it. And that's not something I do. I don't go back and reread books. And uh, so I went into a studio with this book I hadn't looked at since... 2001, I guess. No, when did that book come out? No, I'm sorry, that came out in 19, oh God, a long time ago, before many people were born. <laughs> I, love, I love that you just looked that up, and then we are like, I'm not, I'm not going to say what that year is. <laughs> we're not going to fact check this. I can look it up. Don't worry. We'll put it in the show notes. Okay. Anyways, a book called Second Nature, and there are definitely cringeworthy passages, and they make me cringe because they err on the side of trying to be literary, or trying too hard, or pushing a metaphor too hard. And I mean, I can be more generous to my young self and say, that was my apprenticeship. Mm -hmm. I was learning how to do it. Um, And I can also see the marks of the people I was reading my influences, people like Wendell Berry, who was a big influence on me, and all these other American nature people. And so that is somewhat cringeworthy. But there's a great care, too. I don't think I'm quite as careful. I'm a little more satisfied with what I put down without... Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying not to overhone and you know, write in a somewhat more relaxed way. So I think that's a change. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting when I did, you know, a chapter in this new book, This Is Your Mind on Plants, was originally an audio book. The caffeine
2: one. The caffeine
3: one, yeah, which I did for Audible as an Audible original. And that was such a relaxed writing experience because I knew I was going to speak it. And I also knew I was going to avoid a complicated vocabulary or really long sentences And I kept hearing it more than I usually do as I was writing. And I found that a very liberating experience.
2: It was striking for me. So in the book that comes right after this piece on opium that you wrote for Harper's, and you and I have actually talked about that piece before, but the the juxtaposition of those two reading them back to back before talking to you is actually part of the reason I asked that question, because the caffeine writing, it's interesting. It just feels so much more like conversational. Yeah to me like there's all these moments of like levity in the writing and in the delivery that's like can you believe this shit (laughs) you know and that which isn't there in the opium piece even though it has all the same kind of elements of can you believe this shit you know
3: yeah but it was very much uh well it's a fraught piece right I was writing the opium piece with lawyers breathing down my neck and the DEA possibly taking an interest in what I was doing so it was You know, one was about an illegal drug and one was about a legal drug. (laughs) So that accounts for some of the difference in the weather in those pieces. One is kind of a romp and the other is all about fear and loathing and the drug war. But at the literary level, the drug piece is fancier, more literary, more self-conscious in its choice of words and metaphors and just more raw. And the caffeine piece is really just was great fun. I was learning incredible stuff. And there's also something really liberating about writing about something you're sharing with the reader. I mean, the reader is probably drinking caffeine as they're reading this, right? They've had some that day. Everybody is involved. 100% my experience of reading it. It was
2: just like, I, I read the whole thing. <laughs> they started it, and it, you get two pages into it, and you're like, I've already had a cup of coffee while I've reading this. Like, we're, <laughs> like I'm, I, I'm having an altered experience
3: reading this piece. You know? And it was just so there's a kind of exuberance in it that was great fun. It was a wonderful topic to hit on.
2: You say it's a wonderful topic to hit on. And I want to talk for a second about those choices. When you think about topics, like the balance between nature and nurture, like how much of it is, I am genuinely abundantly curious about this thing and how much of it is like, there's a lot of available real estate right over there. And if I get there first, that's a real opportunity. Like, what's the balance between
3: those two things? Well, it's interesting. I mean, caffeine has been, there's tons of stuff written about it. There are whole books about coffee and tea. And it's not like I had some news. So that was a case of my just saying, I can make this mine. I can own this topic by the way I will approach it. Mm -hmm. And what I'm bringing to a topic like that is a set of, questions that I'm interested in, having to do with the deep abiding human desire to change consciousness, right? This has been a theme in my work going back to Botany of Desire. I'm also bringing the fact that I understand that domesticated plants manipulate us and that we're in this symbiotic relationship. So our desire to get caffeinated is a strategy on the part of the coffee and tea plants, to get more habitat, more care, more attention from us. So I have a context that I can bring when I'm looking at a plant, and I have enough confidence that I can take that pretty well-chewed topic and freshen it, and that's one of the things writers do. There's another kind of piece, and this was true when I started writing about psychedelics, and you know, the germ of How to Change Your Mind was a piece I did for The New Yorker in 2015 called The Trip Treatment which is also true of the food writing, right? Like the germ of that was in New, New York Times, Times piece magazine. About- yeah. Oh yeah. It was my editors at the Times magazine that really convinced me to spend a few years working on food issues. Uh, Jerry Marzorati, in particular, and Adam Moss, who were editing the magazine at that point, Adam was the editor and Jerry was number two. They were like, this is on people's minds. People are anxious about their food. We should really like take a deep dive into the food system. And so they encouraged me down the path that led to Omnivore's Dilemma. I mean, you know, the story ideas weren't so specific. You know, they would say, we want a cover story on meat. And that was all they would say. And I'd go off and figure out what the story was. But it was that kind of relationship, which was wonderful. I mean, I think... I think writers should get paid to write pitches, basically. I mean, <laughs> if you have a relationship with a magazine, they should give you a thousand bucks to go find the story in this general vicinity. Mm-hmm. Writers have to do so much work finding stories for editors gratis. And it's one of our most valuable services that we provide. So, anyway, the Times would do this every now and then and throw you a thousand dollars to spend a month on the phone figuring out what the story was, which is great luxury. Um, But with psychedelics, it was weird. I felt like I did have the territory to myself. And I was kind of looking over my shoulder like, where is everybody? This is such a great story. (laughs) Yeah, were you like surprised? I was so surprised and it almost made me nervous. Like, maybe this isn't a story if no one else is working on it. Because when I was doing the food stuff, you know, Eric Schlosser was doing work and there were lots of people. I felt like competitive pressure to get Omnivore's Dilemma done quickly. But psychedelics wasn't the case. And I'm not sure exactly why. Do you have a theory? Well, there was a world of people who wrote about psychedelics, but they wrote from inside the circle of people interested in psychedelics. There was no one outside that circle looking in. You know, I was curious about it, skeptical about it. I I couldn't believe that you would give a high dose of psilocybin to someone who had a terminal cancer diagnosis. That idea seemed crazy when I started. And that was one of the questions I wanted to understand. Like, why, why would someone take it under those circumstances, and what would it do for them? But... I don't know. I just think it was just one of those stories that people missed. And I decided to write the book before I even finished the story. But I have been at this game long enough that I will figure out some way to make it fresh and my own. And so far, so good. I mean, I'm sure that I'll run up against, you know, some obstacle where I have no idea how to make it fresh.
2: I think that thing you're talking about is connected to what I was asking about the writing. Like, I hear you when you say, like, the actual work, putting the sentences down it's not easier but i think part of what i was asking about was like that confidence that you're talking about which is like if i get into this i'm gonna i'm gonna find my way out of it yeah
3: that's just a leap of faith i mean it's backed by editors i've worked with a long time obviously that helps a lot at this point in my career i work with the same editors over and over again i've had the same book editor for all my books for nine books same literary agent so I don't have to go through a long process of selling them. Mm-hmm. And they have some confidence that, oh, if he wants to ride psychedelics, there must be some reason that it's a good idea. <laughs> Do you think there's like, there's no bounds now? Like if you were just like... Oh, I'm sure like, I could find the bounds. Legos. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going... Going like, deep. I'm go- going 500 pages on Legos. <laughs> well, you know, that's what the New Yorker used to exist for, right? A place you could go 500 pages on Legos. I mean, I have pitched ideas that people thought were stupid. When was the last time you did get a pitch accepted? i have to think about that. I mean, there was a moment where I wanted to write the book that became Botany Desire and my editor didn't see it. And I wrote a really shitty pitch. And it was just about the human relationship with plants. And it just sounded like David Attenborough or something. And <laughs> And she was like, I don't see this. So we were going to, my agent and I were like, well, I guess we have to go somewhere else. Someone else will publish this. This was my third book, I guess. And then when Anne, my editor, Anne Godoff, heard this, she said, "Okay, look, I don't really get this book, but if it's what you want to do, I'm in for the whole career, which is an amazing thing for a a book editor to say. Yeah. Tell me what you need to live on for two years, which is what it was going to take me to write. And she gave me exactly that number. You know, she couldn't justify it on her spreadsheet, but she did it. It was a huge vote of confidence. So, you know, so it was an unsuccessful pitch that I did get to write. I like that that's your story for the last time you didn't get to pitch taken. (laughs) I'm sure there are others. I mean, I've had many conversations with editors where they're like, pass, pass, you know. I mean, a lunch where you throw out a few ideas. But I haven't actually been writing for magazines for a while. I don't know. It's just sort of not where my heart is. And the headaches of magazine publishing are like, I don't know. I'm just finding like the investment of work in doing books is just better and smarter. I want to be left alone a little more than magazines want to leave you.
2: I wonder if book publishing is still in a place where an editor can say that kind of thing like I'm in for the career
3: yeah I don't know that's a good question I mean in general it's book to book and that's how people look at it um, but it's not smart because uh, you look at any nonfiction writer and they're going to have some bombs along the way and you know nonfiction is different than fiction in that people pick up books not just because it, your name is on the cover but they also have to be interested in the topic I I couldn't get people to read 500 pages on Lego, uh, as much as you think that's a fine idea. Um, (laughs) So it's that mix of the byline and the topic, I think, that is really important. That's how I pick what I'm going to read. And that's how I pick magazine articles, too. I look, oh, this person on that topic, that's interesting. And that casting, which is, of course, usually what editors do, is I think is really important. I don't think it's done that well anymore. I just find that so many stories... That you read in good magazines are not driven by anyone giving thought to that the the casting and i think the casting is really important i sort of feel the same way but i
2: don't know whether it's that the casting is not as focused on or i'm not as up on the casting that's being done like i might have aged out of knowing what the fuck people are thinking
3: (laughs) (laughs) i may have aged out over like who who are the interesting voices but I don't know. At Harper's, we thought a lot about this. You know, we did that old trick of sending novelists to do nonfiction stories, which I find often produces great results. You know, sending Robert Stone to the Republican convention or sending Stanley Elkin to the Academy Awards, all those kind of moves, which you don't see as much of anymore. And I love doing that as an editor. But I don't get asked to do those stories. <laughs> like, Hey, let's send Pollen to... (laughs) You want to go to the Academy Awards? I never get those pitches from editors.
2: Yeah. Well, you know, all the editors are listening. (laughs) Pollen wants (laughs) wants to go to the Iowa
3: State Fair or whatever. Anything but a
2: cruise. (laughs) There's a great great history of cruise writing.
3: <laughs> there is, actually. Well, there's... Um, it's an
2: incredible genre. There's there's David Foster Wallace. David Foster Wallace, yes. Katie Weaver wrote a And I think that was a Wallace.
3: Harper's piece, The Cruise. I think we sent him... We would send him... I mean, it was shooting fish in a barrel, the assignments we gave him. <laughs> the State Fair. Yeah. They were a little too easy in, in retrospect. So part of what I hear you saying is that
2: when you're thinking about topics, you're doing some of that casting work yourself so it's like a mix of three things it's like where your genuine curiosity is because it's going to be years of your life it's where there feels like there's open space you know what's coming around the bend where people's interests are and then there's also this element of like it's going to be you on the thing
3: yeah yeah i guess so i'm also looking for some logic in going from this topic to that topic that's interesting what do you mean well I think you want to be able to tell a story as to why you this was the next step for you. Um, Tell a story to yourself, and then when the book comes out, explain it to readers. I mean, you know, the move from food to psychedelics looked like this right angle turn, but there were a lot of continuities in my mind. There was still this plant continuity. There was health continuity. It was about things we take into our bodies that change us. You know, to me, there was like it didn't seem ridiculously out of left field, although it did to some people. So I do think a little bit about that, too. Fox Creative.
1: This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. I hate it so freaking much. (laughs)
2: also this element of getting closer to our highest and best selves. Like, I think that's embedded in both of those books. You read Omnivore's Dilemma and you want to eat better.
3: Yeah. And you read How to Change Your Mind, and you want to think more openly. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, there's a self-improvement piece to it, to what I write about. I am looking for ways to live your best self. And also, I'm very interested in transformation. A friend of mine pointed this out to me years ago. I write about transformation, and that involves self-transformation, but also um, the way we transform the world, the way we are transformed by things in the world. And that's what moves me. It's what moves me when I visit an incredibly innovative, sustainable farm and look how someone is transforming sunlight and soil and water into food and when I see someone transforming themselves through a psychedelic experience, I, I find all that very moving. So, so yeah, I mean, the, you know, Lewis Lapham used to have this phrase, the higher how-to for work that draws on what is, of course, a great American tradition. Americans have been writing about how to live for a very long time and at different registers of the culture, higher and lower. You know, Dale Carnegie and Henry David Thoreau are on a continuum, and I'm somewhere in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> Are you interested in that kind of self-improvement in your non-writing life? Yeah. Oh, definitely. Part of my interest in psychedelics was see if I could get better. (laughs) I don't mean get better because I was ill. I mean just get better. Uh, I've changed my diet along the way several times based on what I've learned. I took up a meditation practice after my dalliance with psychedelics, and I found that very helpful. So, yeah, definitely. I'm always looking for things i can do that are going to make me feel better and be healthier so i do pay attention to those things definitely
2: i'm getting a little older in my life <laughs> it happens yeah it, it tends to happen and i also am more that way i'm always trying new things and new ways of eating and exercise and stuff and i feel like something's happened in my like 40s where it makes some of my peers uncomfortable in a way that feels new Mm like there's something silly is not the right word, but it kind of captures the spirit of like continually trying to
3: improve in that way. Yeah. I mean, I think people feel like they're being implicitly criticized. I mean, you know, tell someone you're a vegan when you're going to dinner and you'll set off an uproar. I mean, less so now than initially, but people feel that, you know, you're making a judgment on what they're serving. And, um, you know, we're normative about all these things. I have no disdain for people who don't meditate. And I have no (laughs) disdain for meat eaters. But I just happen not to be one.
2: Yeah, there's like a judgment aspect of it. But there's also like a thing that I can see starting to happen in people my age that's like, it is what it is. I am who I am kind of energy Mm. you know
3: yeah but i i find that lots of people do want to be better in this way or that and lots of people are interested in using their lives or their bodies or their minds as a laboratory what would happen if i did this could i really be a happier person if i did x or y um i think there is a curiosity about that but yes there are definitely people who find that annoying they're often english people (laughs) (laughs) who just think this American drive for self-improvement is just so ridiculous are you comfortable with your place on the uh
2: Carnegie Thoreau spectrum
3: (laughs) well I don't know exactly where it is I mean the storytelling is still really central the information that I you know ferret out is still really central it's not all in the service of a self-improvement agenda by any means You know, it's a question my editor sometimes will ask, and she, I mean, she's a brilliant editor, and I'm sure I'm not the only person she's asking that question, but she'll ask me when I'm developing an idea, well, how is this going to change people's lives? Which is a big question to ask. I mean, it's a lot to ask of a book, but I think it's a worthwhile aspiration.
2: Right, and it does feel to me like there are moments in which you have in the work sort of turned to the camera and offered something prescriptive. They're rare, but like, eat food, not too much,
3: mostly plants, Yeah, you know, those are words to live by. But part of it is audiences demand that kind of reductive formula at some point. And I came up with that because after I published Omnivore's Dilemma, which is really not a nutrition book, it's really about how the food system works and it's about the ethics and environmental implications, all anybody wanted to know was, well, what should I eat for my health? You know, it's like, oh, come on, I went to feedlots, I went to slaughterhouses, <laughs> and you're really worried about your fat content, you know? And so I finally succumbed and, I, you know, did a piece, actually, again, at the suggestion of uh, Jerry Marzerotti at the Times. People really want to know what they should eat. And the book was called Food Rules. So I have indulged in... Um, satisfying the reader's desire for some simple... But, I, you know, I wanted to know too. I mean, I did that deep dive into nutrition science hoping to answer that question. And that's a really important reminder to me that the questions that drive successful writing are not necessarily fancy and that some very simple questions like, what should I eat? Where does my food come from? Why do psychedelics change the mind the way they do? These are not sophisticated questions But the answers get sophisticated and are very interesting. And so very often there's a pretty simple question at the heart of a project.
2: I think that's part of how you see that space coming around the bend is what's a question that's so simple that people aren't asking it?
3: Yeah, I mean, certainly with my students, I said somewhere in the first 500 words, I want to see a really interesting question. Mm -hmm. Questions are more interesting than answers and they drive a piece forward, right? A question in its DNA is all about suspense. What's the answer? Suspense in writing isn't just who killed Major Mustard in the, you know, in the library. It's really just like, yeah, that's an interesting question. What's the answer? I'm going to keep reading. So framing those questions, I think, is the key to starting a good piece. It's like, okay, what is the question here? Well, I think that's true in
2: interviewing too, you know. I mean, It took me a long time to realize that if I sounded dumber, the interviews would be better.
3: Yeah, I know. And that was true as a journalist too. I always would go into places hoping to impress the person that I was interviewing with really thoughtful questions that were at this level where the reader didn't really care. Right. And that was about my ego. And I have found over time that the willingness to go in and parade your ignorance. I think you have to be somewhat careful about it because you don't want like, a scientist to realize, okay, this guy hasn't read any of my stuff. Mm-hmm. I don't want to give him that you know, lecture genetics 101. I'm not going back there. You have to somehow signal that you've done your homework. Yeah, there's an art of like informed simplicity. Yeah, exactly. That's a good term for it. And it took me a while to get that. So often I'll do a lot of preparation, but my questions don't reflect it they'll be simpler than that yeah
2: I do think that's connected to the way that you were talking about picking topics too which is just like what's a question so simple that lots of people wouldn't necessarily sort of almost want to be seen asking it like why is it that every single person I know had a cup of coffee or a cup of tea this morning
3: yeah am I addicted to this substance why what is it doing for me I mean there's so much interesting so many interesting questions hidden in plain sight very often the most interesting questions are hidden in plain sight And I like operating in that territory. Are there questions you're thinking about now that are going to be the next era? Like, are you ready to be the uh, something else guy? (laughs) (laughs) No, I just want to be the guy guy. I don't want to be the uh, something else guy. Well, I'm working on some really obvious questions right now, which is consciousness. What is this thing? (laughs) Okay. We're all conscious. We all have a conviction that we are conscious beings. We can't be sure of anybody else. How does this three pounds of gray tofu between your ears generate a feeling of being alive? I got really curious about this. And it was psychedelic experiences that make people very curious about consciousness. Because for those of us who go through life not thinking about it and regarding consciousness as kind of the windshield that we look through, psychedelics smudges the windshield in various ways or cracks it, and suddenly you see, oh, there's a windshield what's that about? <laughs> I didn't even notice that thing. Yeah, I didn't notice that thing because it was so clean. Um, but <laughs> dirty it up a little and, you know, there it is. Um, so anyway, I've been looking at the science of consciousness. And am I going to have anything original to, you know, on the mind-body problem that people have been working on for 3,000 years? I don't think so. So the challenge is going to be making the journey interesting. Um, so I've been interviewing people about that, both scientists and philosophers and writers. And it's an enormously challenging topic. You have to go pretty deep into neuroscience only to find that neuroscience has nothing to tell you.
2: <laughs> they just get to the front of the car and they're like, "Yeah, that is a windshield. We don't know what it is. <laughs>
3: you can clean it up with this." Um, yeah, so, you know, there's some very uh, AB questions there that I'm that are very much on my mind these days and probably wouldn't have been if not for these psychedelic experiences. So that's an example of how one project leads into the other there's kind of like a sourdough starter in topics and that you you take a little of that forward and see does it leaven a loaf or not so right now that's yeah that's what i'm thinking about
2: i mean there's also this thing in which you are a participant in trying to answer these simple questions in your work What does that look like with consciousness?
3: Well, that's a good question. I mean, in a way, it's easy. We do this all the time as writers. You know, we have the laboratory of our own consciousness, and we observe it and can write about it. Although it's very hard, and the act of describing it changes it in all sorts of ways. So I don't know what the equivalent of buying a cow will be (laughs) or taking LSD. I don't know. I just went to this very interesting experience. I was in London and this neuroscientist named Anil Seth, who's has a fascinating, you know, approach to consciousness. He was involved in creating what is essentially a light show and a music show. And you go into this theatrical round and sit in these very comfortable chairs and you close your eyes and white strobe light is flashed in your eyes at a very specific frequency that, that kind of entrains your brain in this alpha frequency, which is very <laughs> alert, but calm frequency. And, uh, What's amazing about this experience is that even though you're having white light flashed in your eyes, through your eyelids, you're not seeing white light. You're seeing this incredible, very complicated fractal patterns of light in many, many different colors. And I couldn't quite believe that this wasn't being projected onto my eyelids, that it was coming from inside my visual cortex. And I opened my eyes because I was told it was a safe strobe to look at. And indeed, it was just white light. And... He's making the point that so much of what we perceive is not coming from outside as we think, not coming through the windshield that is projected. Right. The windshield, the windshield, is, windshield nearly is completely clear as you opaque. Think. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a movie screen. And that, um, so your visual cortex is getting all this information and it's trying to interpret it with great difficulty because it's kind of freaky information. And this is its best guess as to what's going on out there. So there are experiences like that that may be enlightening. There are also very interesting virtual reality experiments going on in neuroscience now about body ownership and how do you create the sense of identity with your body. Um, so anyway, learning about things like the rubber hand illusion, which is kind of freaky, you can be persuaded if you put your hand under the desk and then you put a rubber hand on the desk and you somebody rubs both of them in the same rhythmic pattern and then leaves your hand alone and just rubs the rubber hand, you will feel it. Ugh. Yes, I know. It's freaky. So our consciousness is a lot more creative than we give it credit for. Anyway, this is a long, strange trip I'm on. I don't know where it's going to end up. This is one of the ones where, though, since I know I don't I don't have the news break on the discovery of how consciousness is generated from matter, it's all going to be, how do I make the subject mine? How do I... Um, Make the journey interesting. Could crash and burn.
2: It could, but also maybe you're going to figure out how to clean everybody's windshield. <laughs> if you do, you got to come back and, and talk to me. I'll, you I'll
3: definitely. You, I'll, you, I'll call you first,
2: Michael. Thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Longform. I'm Max Linsky. My co-hosts are Aaron Lammer and Evan Ratliff. Our editor this week was Susan Peterson. Thanks to Susan. Thanks to Megan Valley, who did the show notes for the first time. Megan, welcome. And thanks so much to Noelle Mateer, who has been with us for a long time but is moving on. She is reporting and writing for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. Noelle, congrats and thank you. And thanks so much to Michael Pollan. The paperback version of This Is Your Mind on Plants is out right now. And the Netflix version of How to Change Your Mind is streaming right now, all the time. You can go watch whatever you want. We'll see you next week.